Do you ever wonder about the meaning of life? Do you ever contemplate and say, hmm, what's life all about? You know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Oftentimes, students, when they uh, go to college, uh, particularly, you know, in, in the later years, they'll take a class in philosophy. Philosophy class is an interesting place to be. Anybody taking philosophy class? It, all of a sudden, you learn stuff. It makes your head spin. Philosophy is uh, the study of ideas about knowledge, truth, and the nature and meaning of life. When I took philosophy class, I, the, there was one, one uh, segment of that class that I remember real clearly, and it was learning about existentialism. Um, existential philosophy. Um, existential philosophy is really interesting in that it is this view of life that says life is meaningless and it's absurd. You live, you die, you exist. That's where existentialism comes from. Exist, ex- existentialism, you die and it's done. And so what do you do with that? Existential philosophy is, is kind of interesting because it has some interesting byproducts in terms of if life is meaningless, if life, life is absurd, how does that shape the way that you live your life? And in most cases, it creates a sense of despair. You know, if, if it doesn't matter what I do, if my life really has no meaning, if I'm just here for a short period of time, and then I die, and they put me in the ground, and it's all done... That's just really hopeless. Existentialism. Um, the existentialism started in the mid-1800s, but it really kind of began to flourish in uh, the middle of the 20th century, uh, in particular after World War II. Two, uh, several different factors made an in, in, impact on that. One was Darwin's theory of evolution, because if Darwin was right and evolution was true, then, then uh, man just evolved from nothingness as a, as a matter of chance, then how can you have meaning in your life as a result of that? Some of the existential philosophers up there. But then um, into the 1900s, and when World War II happened, you took Darwin, and then in World War II, all of a sudden, people were trying to make sense of a leader who would, who would exterminate six million Jews, and it was like, man... How do I wrap my brain around that? And then the introduction of nuclear weapons um, finished the war. It brought an end to the war, but the, re- the reality, the realization that in an instant, a bomb could be launched that could kill hundreds of thousands of people. For lots of people, it w- th- there was this sense of, oh man, do, d- is there any meaning to life? Do we just live and then die and it's done? We've been talking for the last month or so about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what that looks like. Today we're looking at a passage from James chapter 4 that, um, that may seem like it's very existential and that it's kind of hopeless. Take your Bibles out, if you would, and we're going to take a look at that. Turn to James chapter 4. Uh, feel free to open the North Point app and look at the sermon notes that are there. Uh, take a Bible out of the pew in front of you. We're going to start in verse 13 of James chapter 4. I'm using the the New American uh, Standard Version of the Bible this morning. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That seems kind of hopeless, doesn't it? Our life, we just here for a second, 
We're gone. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, you make all these great plans. You plan for the future. You do all this stuff, and you don't have any control over it at all. You don't have a clue what tomorrow holds. How many of you, if you think back four years ago, how many of you anticipated that you would spend Christmas of 2013 without power in your homes? That was not something you planned for, right? And after three great seasons by Michigan State, how many of you anticipated that they would be three and nine last year? And here's the real question. How, of, how many of you thought for sure Michigan State is going to beat Penn State yesterday? <laughs> ah, I don't know. Uh, you know, first service, everyone shouted at me something about a game in Iowa, but I don't know what it was. <laughs> there is an old Yiddish adage that says, Man tracht und gott It means man plans and God laughs. Man plans and God laughs. Have you ever been there? Have you ever set up all of your plans, put all your ducks in a row, made all the reservations, lined everything up, bought the food, cleared the schedule, and only to have all those plans blow up in an instant? It may be a first world problem that causes that to happen. You know, you have a flat tire and all of a sudden everything goes south and nothing happens the way that you thought it would. But it may be a catastrophic, life-changing event. Uh, this past Friday, Deb and I traveled to, to Ohio to help our daughter move from Cincinnati to Indianapolis. Um, I, I said, Holly, you know, I'm preaching on Sunday. I don't know if this is going to work or not. She said, Dad, I really need you to drive this truck. I've never driven a truck that big before. I said, okay, so Holly lined everything up. She had, she had the, the moving van uh, reserved. She had a crew lined up to help pack the truck. She had a crew lined up to help unpack the truck. It was all great. We drive down on Friday, get there, um, and while we're there Friday night, she gets a call, and the reservation for the moving van has fallen through. So she gets, you know, makes the calls, does the stuff, gets a reservation for a second truck. The second truck falls through. She makes reservations for a third truck. We go uh, Saturday morning to pick up this third truck, and, and the shop, the place where this truck is supposed to be is closed, and there's no one in the office, and that truck is not available. She makes a reservation for a fourth truck. We go there. They don't have a truck either. By the time we finally get a 26-foot truck, get back to her house, the crew that was supposed to be there has been working and doing stuff, and they're just about spent at that point in time. But we go through the process of, of loading the, the, uh, the moving van up. In the, in the midst of that, um, she has a couch in her house that I don't know how they got it in, in the house. To, you know, it, was a, it was a couch that was 34 inches, 34 inches from the top to the bottom, and the door was 31 inches. Um, it just didn't go. So we ended up having to destroy the couch, tear it apart to get it through the door to get it out of the house. And if you think about it, when you're moving, leaving a place, you can't just leave a big piece of furniture out on the curb. That's a bad thing. So then we had to go through the process of trying to figure out on a Saturday afternoon as time was flying by, where do you, where do you put a truck when all the dumps, or a, a, a couch when all the, the um, dumps are closed? We finally... Got everything loaded, got everything set, made it back to Indianapolis about 7.30 um, Saturday night, last night. Um, 
And the crew that was scheduled at 2 o'clock to help unload the truck wasn't there, amazingly. You know, what would you expect, Rick? Uh, so we dropped off the truck. We finally got back home last night about, about 11.30. And, um, you know, I had I worked on my message, but I'm, I'm going through the final prep last night before I go to bed. And I get a message as I'm working through the thing that says, your computer has been um, corrupted by a virus. And, you, you know, go, you go through all that. Have you ever experienced that kind of deal where everything just, kinds, uh, just kind of falls apart? Things didn't happen the way that we anticipated. That's the story of our lives, though, right? How many of you would have thought on the morning of September 11th, 2001, that in just a few hours, the World Trade Centers would come down and life would change for us in terms of what we do. This past week, eight people in New York City are on a bike path out, recreation, and a terrorist hits and kills them. Not something they anticipated. You know, in a moment, a drunk driver, a car accident, life changes. To believe that you can anticipate with the future with certainty is foolish, right? To think that we know what the future holds is crazy. The stock market, a year ago, all of the analysts were saying, sell, so man, the market's doing so great, it's going to crash. Don't, you, you, you need to liquidate your stuff. And for the last year, it's just continued to grow at an even greater rate. The real estate market, oh, yeah, we know with certainty. The real estate market's safe. It's always going to grow. Anybody own real estate in 2008 and, and uh, try and sell it at that point? I'm chief among men there. Uh, price of gas, how do, you, how do you know what happens with the price of gas? We don't have any control over it. Only God knows the future. When we assume that we know the future, when we assume that we know the future, we're putting ourselves on par with God. Think about that. I, th I think that Satan loves it when we think that we can control the future because if we believe that we can control the future, if we've got that all under, uh, in, in our hands, we can make sense of that, then we don't need God, right? If we can control the future, what do we need God for? Life, James says, is short. It's like a vapor. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I thought about bringing in a cup of coffee this morning, taking the lid off and see, just being able to see the steam off, off the cup of coffee, but I don't like coffee. I wasn't sure that you'd be able to see it anyway. So have that image. James says our lives are like that vapor that appears above a cup of coffee when you first pour it. It's there for a little bit of time, and then it's gone. Our lives are so short that we've got to ask our question, do they have meaning or not? Either they have meaning or they don't. Either the Bible is right or the existentialists are right. We are insignificant in the big scheme of things. And yet we're incredibly significant to God. If the earth was created 6,500 years ago, think about this for a second. If the earth was created 6,500 years ago, I have lived about one one-thousandth of the, of the span of time 
of the age of the earth. One one-thousandth of that, just a fraction, a fraction of that. Um, in that time, in the last 6,500 years, mathematicians tell us 100 billion people have been born on earth. I'm just one of 100 billion Mathematicians tell us that the earth is one planet in a number that starts with one and then has 24 zeros after it. We're just, we're just a speck. James says, you know what? We're here for a short time and then we're gone. We're insignificant in history. And yet, if the Bible is true and God is alive and he's the one who created every one of those planets, and he's the one who established time. Our lives have incredible significance. His love for us is real. He knows my name. He knows what happens in my life moment by moment. And so that insignificance is turned into significance. God wants us to know and follow and do the mission of Jesus. Because to know Jesus is to know God. He sent Jesus because he sees and knows and cares about our struggles and our pain and our joy. We are incredibly significant to him. James continues and says, instead, instead of that vapor thing, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James says, instead you ought to say, if, it's, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, it implies that the Lord has a will for the details of our lives, right? If James says we're supposed to pray, or supposed to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that, every day has a purpose. There's meaning to our work. There's meaning to our play. There's meaning to our relationships. And that meaning comes from God. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I work off a calendar, work off a to-do list. Every day I get up, take my phone out, and say, okay, what's on the schedule today? What appointments do I have? Uh, look at that stuff. Come into the office, sit down, and look at my to-do list. I got my to-do list with all my stuff to check off, to make sure that I have all that. The question for us, if the Lord wills, Whose calendar are you living by? Is it your calendar or is it God's? Because those things that interrupt us, that blow our to-do list up, those things that change all of our plans, if they're a part of God's calendar and to-do list for us, that's the stuff we want to do and that we want to embrace, not get upset because our list didn't get done. If the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. We need to plan, absolutely, but we need to trust God in the process. When I was a kid growing up in church, uh, I, it seemed like all the old people used this one phrase. It was this phrase, Lord willing. They would say, oh, Lord willing, we're going to go to Dairy Queen after church tonight, you know? <laughs> Lord willing, I'm going to go out to the farm and we're going to get the crops and do all that stuff. It was, it was a phrase that was very common. That phrase comes from this passage of Scripture, and it's actually a pretty good phrase. So, Lord willing, I'm going to take a nap this afternoon, right? <laughs> you know what? Lord willing, tomorrow morning I'm going to come back into my office and sit down and start on my to-do list. 
James says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Sin, James, James says to us, he gives us a very clear instruction. He just says, do the right thing. If you know the right thing to do, do it. Do the right thing. If you don't do the right thing, that's sin. For most people, their perception of who God is is this, this set of lists for us. Don't do these things. Don't do these things. Don't do these things. In the Old Testament, there are 612 laws. We know the Ten Commandments. You know, We can come up with most of those. And we think, I'm not supposed to do those things. That violates God's laws. That, I'm going to sin if I do that. It's a sin of commission. We commit a sin by disobeying God, Right? James turns that all upside down and begins to talk about sins of omission. God says, James says, you know what? If you, knew, if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that's sin. So I, I, I'm thinking in my mind, so does that mean that if God has prompted me to go to Ecuador and I don't, that that's sin? It could be. If, you know, if God prompts me to apologize and ask for forgiveness from my wife and I don't do that, is that sin? It is. If I'm at school and I see the kid that gets his books knocked out of his hands and they're strewn all over the floor and everybody's laughing and making fun and, and the Holy Spirit says, help them, and I don't pick up those books and encourage that kid, that's sin. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. To not go talk to, the, to my neighbor when the Holy Spirit prompts. To not let that woman with all those kids with a cart full of groceries go in front of me if God prompts. To not do the right thing is to sin. Don't, don't miss this. Sin is a really big deal. When James says to know the right thing to do and not do it to him, it's sin, he's saying that separates you from God. It creates this schism for you but in your relationship between you and God. It's a big, big deal to not pay attention to the right thing. So that leads, how, how do you know what the right thing to do is? How do you make a decision about those things? How do you do that? Let me, let me give you five things uh, to just help kind of shape your thought. The first thing is, is scripture. When we know God's word, we, we know who God is. We know what his character is like. So we need to immerse ourselves in scripture. We've got to read it. We've got to just digest it. Got to have it be a part of our lives. Because that, um, when we read scripture, there are some, there's things that give clarity to what the right thing to do is. Last week, James said, pure and, pure and faultless religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. What's the right thing to do? Take care of orphans and widows, right? Scripture says, don't steal, don't lie. What's the right thing to do? Not to steal, not to lie. To not do those things. Scripture's really important. Prayer. Uh, I, let me just encourage you. When you wake up in the morning to, to just say, God, help me see the right thing to do today. Help me to know what the right thing to do today is. 
so that I can do that, so that I can live that out. And to have this constant process of, of communication with God, saying, God, help me to see what the right thing to do is. Uh, the third thing is prompting the Holy Spirit. Um, the, that, that's a little squishier than the first two, right? How do you know, is that the Holy Spirit or not the Holy Spirit? Um, some, some things for me that help filter that. The first thing is, is this particular thing that I think is the prompting of the Holy Spirit, is this consistent with the nature of God? Is, does this mirror God's heart? Second question is, is this something that either Jesus did or Jesus would do? It's the whole WWJD bracelet kind of thing, right? What would Jesus do? The, um, is this something that Jesus did or would do? As I, I'm thinking through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, is this something that would honor God? Is this something that would honor God? If so, maybe that's the right thing to do for me. And, and, and the, the last piece of that is... is uh, it's probably the hardest to wrap your arms around, but I, let, me, let me just tell you, because this, this is a part of my life. This is something that, that I hear and recognize often. If, um, when someone who is completely outside of my conversation brings something, uh, makes a reference to something that I have either been thinking about or that, uh, that I have already thought, I need to take action on that, I believe that that's the Holy Spirit nudging me, kicking me, whatever, to take action on that. So if I'm sitting in the office and I'm working through things and, and as I'm, I'm working on something, I think, oh man, I haven't seen Bill Smith for a while. I need to make contact with Bill Smith. So I may write myself a note and say, yeah, Bill Smith, I, I, I need to do something and that may sit there. If an hour later, Chris walks in my office and says, hey, uh, what was that guy's name who sits over in there? Um, I, I, it's Bill something, Bill Smith. Do you, know what, do you know what he's been doing? Anytime that happens, I, I, I count on the fact that that's the Holy Spirit that's saying, man, you've got to make contact, make a phone call, send a note, do something, because God's in the middle of that nudge, the nudge of the Holy Spirit. Uh, fourth thing, how, how do you know what the right thing to do is uh, to have a deepening relationship with God? You know what? I know, I know the heart of my wife because we've been married for 36 years, raised six kids together. Well, um, we spend lots of time, we talk about all kinds of stuff. And so I know what brings her joy. I know what grieves her. I know, I, you know, I'm not perfect in all that. But because our relationship continues to grow deeper, day by day by day, I know what the right thing to do for her is most of the time, right, Deb? Uh, as our relationship deepens with God, we have this clear sense. Because the first things, you know, when we study scripture, it's easy for that to be intellectual. I read, I read the word and I know, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's intellectual. And when I pray, that's me just saying, God, show me, show me, show me. But when I'm in this relationship with God where I'm walking and talking with him on a daily basis, there's just this sense, oh yeah, that's the right thing to do. It's, I don't even have to think about it because it just, it, it just bubbles up from inside. Last thing is this. How do you know the right thing to do? Wise counsel. Having some people in your life who can give you advice, people that you can talk to, that when you say, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this or not, what do you think? that can give you godly input. That's why, that's why life, being a part of a life group is so important. 
man, you can't make it by yourself. You've got to be connected. You've got to, you've got to have those kind of relationships. You've got to have a, a godly mentor. You've got to have somebody who walks alongside you that, that you can ask those questions of. We've talked about impacting 50,000 people in five years with the grace of Jesus. The reason that we do that is because we believe that if we impact 50,000 people with the grace of Jesus, it will help all people move to a life fully devoted to Jesus. That's why we're here, to help all people move to a life fully devoted to Jesus. And as I've been thinking through how all this stuff fits together, it's this. Don't miss this. We need to impact people with the grace of Jesus for two reasons. The first reason is that we need to do it for us. We need, to, we need to change our mindset, to change our vision, to change our perspective from a perspective on me and we, an internal focus, and say, oh, my relationship with God is all about me. Yeah, it is, but we need to push that out. We need to see the needs that are around us. We need to see how God is working outside of our little isolation. So when we talk about the challenge of impacting 50,000 people with the grace of Jesus, that's a big deal because it forces us to look outside of ourselves. So it's important for us. But it's also important for those people who are impacted. There are people who are far from God who are desperate for him and don't have a clue about how to interact with him, how to respond to him. So when we, when we impact people with the grace of Jesus, it provides the opportunity to have a conversation for them to experience his love in a dynamic way. Next week, we're going to take up a benevolence offering. Chris talked about that. That's a tool that will allow us to impact people with the grace of Jesus in just an incredibly, extravagantly generous way. Ben Franklin was the guy who said, never put off until tomorrow what you can do today, right? When I looked that up, it's interesting because he actually had another phrase, another clause that was after that, never, never leave that till tomorrow, which you can do today. You may delay, but time cannot. There is this sense of urgency to what we do when we think about what the right thing to do is. In 1993, a movie was released that's been viewed by millions of people. It's a movie that's rich in both philosophy and theology, although I don't think that the producer necessarily designed it that way. The movie starred Bill Murray as a weatherman named Phil Connors, who was sent by a station in Pittsburgh to Puxtahani, Pennsylvania, to do, a, to do a story on whether or not Puxtahani Phil would see his shadow on Groundhog Day. He travels with his producer, cameraman. They, get to, they travel on February 1st. They get to Puxtahani. You know the story. They get settled into their stuff. He wakes up the next morning on February 2nd. The, the, the alarm clock goes off. He hears Sonny and Cher singing, I got you, babe. Uh, the, the local radio personalities go into their shtick. They do their stuff. They talk about the storm that's coming. Murray goes to do this, this remote shot of Puxtahani Phil in the shadow, and he's bored and irritated that he has to be there. He's ready to get back to, back to Pittsburgh. But the snow comes in and, and keeps him in Puxtahani. He's upset. He goes to bed that night. He wakes up the next morning. The alarm goes off, and he hears Sonny and Cher again saying, I got you, babe. Uh, and the same radio personalities with the exact same words say the exact same stuff, and it's February 2nd all over again. He goes 
does the remote shot. He's really irritated now trying to figure out what's going on. And the, uh, most of you know the movie. What happens is that day repeats over and over and over again. Um, the reason that I said it's a movie that's rich in philosophy and theology is because the movie is really about what happens for Phil Connors when he realizes that his life is short and he's trying to find meaning in it. What's the first thing that he does initially in that movie? When he realizes that every day happens over and over again, he begins to indulge himself, right? He begins to eat everything he can. He eats all those donuts in the cafeteria. Um, he, he begins to, to fine-tune his conversation with the one woman to be able to have a relationship with her, trying stuff different day, going through that whole pro- He indulges all of his pleasures until he gets to a point that he realizes that that's not... That, that doesn't meet his needs. It doesn't fulfill him. And when that happens, he turns and goes into this, this period of despair because life is meaningless. It's the words of Solomon from the Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. And so in, the, in that section of the movie, what's he do? He, he gets in police car chases. He steals Puxtahani Phil. He, uh, he kills himself. He drives the car off the cliff. He does all that stuff. Because what's it matter? Every day is the same. There is no meaning. He's filled with despair. And at the end of the movie, he's turned and he's taken a different perspective completely. He has filled his life with serving others and giving to others, making a difference in people and in eternity. He learns how to play the piano so that he can bring joy to people. He, he schedules his days so that he's there under the tree when the kid falls from the tree to protect him. He's there in the restaurant when the guy chokes on the piece of meat and gives him the Heimlich and just keeps going. He fills his life with this sense of, you know what, how can I serve others? How can I make a difference in this world? Do the right thing. Make your life count. Serve, love, laugh, show kindness. Invest in people and in eternity. That's selflessness. Listen to the words of Jesus. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is all about Jesus. Discipleship is all about Jesus. We've got to know him in order to follow him, in order to be changed by him, in order to be committed to the mission of Jesus. I just just want to finish by giving you a a very specific challenge today. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. For some of you, you have been coming to church and and, and you know in your head, you know in your head, yeah, I need to believe in Jesus. I kind of get it. I need to make some kind of commitment. Yeah, I need to do that. To not take action on that is sin. To not take action on that is sin. For others of you, you're thinking, you know what? Yeah, I know I need to confess Jesus. I need to confess my sins to Jesus. I need to confess Jesus to my friends, that I'm a follower of Jesus. To know that and not do it is sin. Some of you know that there's sin in your life that you need to repent of that you need to come clean about. To not take action on that is, is sin. For, for some, you, you see people baptized and you think, yeah, you know what, I think I, need to ta- I think I need to make that public declaration of my faith in Jesus. 
I think I need to put on Christ, as Galatians says, in, in baptism. To not do that, if you know it's the right thing to do, is sin. God wants to have a relationship with us, and sin separates us. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Let's pray. God, um, we come to you right now and just ask that you would help our relationship with you grow deeper. God, that we would recognize your prompting from the Holy Spirit, that we would recognize your character, that we would look at the world around us with eyes that come from you. And Lord, that we would take action, that we would take action. Change us, Father. Transform us by the power of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.